So this is our Wednesday night Bible study group, and we're continuing our study on the Gospel of Mark. So I thought we'd open with a word of prayer and just jump right in. Our Heavenly Father, as we come tonight, uh, we ask that um, you would bless this time that we have set aside uh, to come and to study and to learn and to think and reflect on uh, the scripture as it's been recorded in Mark's gospel. We pray, as we often pray, that you give us eyes to see um, as you see, to see the text, but to also see ourselves, and that you give us ears to hear uh, what the Spirit is saying to the churches that you would give us the courage to respond faithfully to what we see in here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a pretty exciting uh, uh, piece. I thought I'd actually open with uh, a quotation from this Sunday sermon, if you were there. So I know on Sunday we're working with um, Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But there, there was a fair amount of overlap thematically uh, in the Gospels, which is no, no surprise. But there was one particular point that uh, Phil said that I thought really resonated with what was going on in Mark chapter 1 and 2. And um, so I thought I would share this. So this is, this is from Phil. He said, Now most of us, when we think of the kingdom of God, we think of heaven. We think of wanting to make the cut so we can go there when we die so that we can fly away and be with Jesus. But Jesus was teaching a very different kind of message. He taught that the kingdom was near. He taught about a kingdom where people could experience God right now in their circumstances on a personal level, and I might add, on a social level as well, and know that God is there. His message was not just about dying one day and going to heaven. His message was about living in the kingdom of God right now, and he, Jesus, comes along to show people how, or to show people and to tell people about the chance of following him right now. And I think that message is as um, significant today as it was when Jesus was physically on the earth. That he was uh, announcing good news. It was happy. It was joyful. The kingdom of God was near and that was good news for these people. And uh, in particular, we're going to look at some of, these, some of the folks that it was good news for. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 2. And uh, I thought I would read at least uh, a portion, a couple of portions here. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm reading from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them. So many gathered around that there's no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking uh, the word to them. Then some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And, then he, uh, and when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof uh, above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And at once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat, and he went before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, uh, We have never seen anything like this. So I do want to kind of make it through uh, the rest of chapter 2 tonight, the calling of Levi and the question about fasting and the pronouncement about the Sabbath. But we'll, we'll pause there in, in our reading uh, just to say a few things. So we know that, that Jesus had been um, born in Bethlehem, but that his parents kind of escaped um, Herod the Great, right, and um, went down to Egypt. And so when Jesus is still a toddler, um, they kind of make their way, kind of refugees, back into the land of Israel. But they're warned not to go back to Bethlehem because Herod's son is there and um, he was a pretty ruthless uh, leader. And so instead, they relocate to Nazareth. So Jesus has grown up in Nazareth, but um, the Gospels, certainly the Gospel of Mark, but also Matthew and Luke, uh, center not around Nazareth, but around the Sea of Galilee. I mean, everything seems to either happen in Capernaum, on the way to Capernaum, having just left Capernaum. I mean, that's, that's their headquarters. It's where Peter is from, and it's where Jesus lives as an adult. So when it says in the text that he's kind of, he's gone to Capernaum, he's gone home. And when it says he's at a house in Capernaum, he's at his house. I mean, it's most likely that the house that had the hole dug in the roof was Jesus' own home. It's where he lived. I mean, the houses there were not like our houses so much where you had kind of standalone, detached homes. It was more like kind of an extended um, apartment complex where someone would just add another room or add another room or add another room. And so Capernaum was a really small little village. I mean, it just kind of hugs the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it couldn't have had more than uh, 100 or 200 people at the most kind of, kind of living there. So it's a very small fishing village. Jesus has made it home. He's been out preaching to the other villages around, perhaps you know, down to, to, to Magdala or to one of the other villages that kind of hug the coast. And now he's made it home. And... People have followed him. You know, he's a, he's a popular preacher. The crowd is so big, right, that these four guys come and they, they bring their friend to, to there and they can't get in. And so they go up on the roof. And so the houses were made out of this kind of black balsamic rock. And so they were, um, we don't have many things in the U.S. to compare it to. But perhaps like the Navajo or the Hopi, do you know the kind of adobe houses they have out in Arizona? 
So it's kind of kind of an earth finish, but then a flat roof. Do, do you know the look I'm talking about? So that's that's the kind of housing they had there. And so kind of going up on the roof wouldn't have been like going up on a roof in Lakeland where the roofs are pitched and, you know, you've been scared to slide off or something. They, they were flat roofs. And so they get up there and they had that kind of an adobe um, type uh, roofing uh, material. And so it actually says in Mark's gospel that they dug through it, right? And so that's what have happened. So imagine Jesus has been out traveling as, you know, in his ministry, just getting started and he gets home. And there's a big crowd there, and so he's doing his thing. And all of a sudden, here comes the roof caving in. And so they lower this guy down, and he says, it says, he looks up to their friends. What does he say? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. This is, this is a great story. Like, a sick person gets brought to Jesus, what do we expect? A story about healing. Yeah, exactly, a story about healing. And often, we kind of relate the faith of the sick person to whether or not they get healed. But in this case, it's the faith of his friends doesn't result, at least initially, in his healing, if we're reading you know, slow enough and paying attention, it results in his forgiveness. I mean, at least part of me thinks this. Jesus is there teaching away. They dig a hole in his roof. The guy lowers it down, and he looks up and goes, Oh, you got some good friends. I forgive you, brother. Forgive you for what? Well, maybe forgive you for being a hole in my roof was at least part of what was going on. It is interesting. Never in Mark's gospel do we get the singular word sin. Right, it's always in the plural, sins. And so he forgives this guy's sins, which is not something that's utterly unfamiliar to the Jewish people. Like the idea of forgiveness of sins was deeply rooted in their culture. There was a particular place they would go to get forgiveness of sins, and there's a particular group of people that they would talk to or work with to kind of process that forgiveness of sins. But the idea of forgiveness of sins wasn't what was new to them. It's that if you wanted forgiveness of sins, you had to go to a priest. And the, the place where the priests were, were not at the local synagogue, where you might have had a rabbi teaching. The place where you had priests were in Jerusalem, at the temple. So if Jerusalem, the temple, the priest, is where you would normally go to get forgiveness of sins, just who does Jesus think he is forgiving sins? That's, that's the rub. And so he gets questioned on it, although apparently not, not publicly. You know, it's not so hard. Um, you can kind of tell when people aren't agreeing with you when you, when you speak. You should, you should try it. I see it all the time on Sundays. <laughs> I was thinking more so actually in my classes. Um, there, there's... Uh, what is it? RBF? Yeah. Don't look that up. Um, but it, it's, it's a reference to uh, people not looking happy, but it's, it's got a derogatory message. So, um, When Jesus, apparently, sees this on the face of, of the, uh, the scribes of the Pharisees who were there, 
which is an interesting group, not just the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees. Um, and we talked a little bit about them, them last week, and we might say more in a minute when we get to the next story. But here, um, the question is, who are you to do this? And his answer is, the Son of Man has the authority. Now, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation. So last week we talked about how the gospel says he's the Messiah, right? He's the Christ, and he's the Son of God. Those, that's both a very, very kind of religious, uh, excuse me, a very political statement in that he's the Messiah. And it's kind of a, a religious statement that he's the Son of God. But Jesus never self-identifies as the Christ. Like he never says, I am the Christ. Um, other people say that about them, and he says, you're right. They, they, they will reference um, Messianic text, and he'll say, yeah, that's me. But he likes the term son of man. I think part of what's going on here is they had all of their expectations as to what the Christ would be. And he's not going to quite fit those. And, and even when they start to, and granted, it's the Roman soldier who says you're the son of God, even as that starts to expand, he still kind of holds on to this title, Son of Man, as self-designation. What's great about it, I mean, Son of Man, I mean, it's used in a variety of places in the Old Testament, often for uh, one of the prophets. But the, the place that seems to fit best with Jesus' use of it comes from Daniel 7. So in Daniel, you get this kind of angelic figure who's the sole representative of Israel, who God kind of vindicates and rescues and that person becomes the kind of champion of Israel. And in the end of the story, the Son of Man ascends and sits on the throne with uh, the Ancient of Days. And so Jesus kind of uses this title, Son of Man, um, as a self-designation. I mean, anytime you read it in Mark's Gospel, Jesus says Son of Man, he's talking about himself. And he's talking about this new authority he has to do these types of things. I mean, there's a way in which this, this little story is kind of the gospel of Mark in a nutshell. I mean, Jesus uh, teaches and he heals, right? You get his kind of words and his actions. He's condemned for blasphemy, which kind of comes the big deal, um, uh, gets blown up when he gets to Jerusalem. And he's ultimately vindicated by kind of the miraculous act. Um, so, the main story of the gospel is kind of writ small here. Uh, one thing, too, that I think would have um, surprised them kind of in this setting and maybe would surprise us. I mean, if somebody came and knocked a hole in my roof, uh, my first um, inclination would not be to forgive them. My first inclination would be to get them to pay for my roof. Um, and this sense in which Jesus forgives gets carried into the, to the next uh, section with the calling of Levi that we're going to look at now. But I want to say that Jesus' forgiveness kind of really marks his ministry, and it marks the work of God. It's forgiveness, not revenge. Even when we think about God being just, we need to think about God's justice primarily as restorative justice. 
and not so much as retributive justice. It's not like you're going to get what's coming to you kind of justice as much as it is um, God can make this right. Right? He can, he can, he can fix what's broken. And so this, this kind of brings us to that, that next passage, the calling of Levi, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And, he sat, uh, and as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? When they saw that Jesus was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, "Um, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of physician of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous but the sinners. Um, this character Levi is never mentioned again in Mark's gospel, and it's a he's kind of a little ambiguous, like a little cameo that just kind of pops up. And there's not a lot of details in the text about his role as a tax collector, um, but given where Jesus the, the motion and geographical movement that's there. Jesus kind of going along the sea. Capernaum was on the border of kind of Galilee in an area known as the Tetrarchy of Philip, uh, owned, uh, operated by Antipas's uh, brother. So these are, the, these are the sons of Herod the Great. And used to be you could travel back and forth through that land during Herod the Great's time, and it was all one area, and so there would have been no tolls. But now um, there are tolls. Um, and... This, this guy, Levi, is kind of like sitting at the toll booth collecting money for the king. And everybody would have been kind of, I don't know, a little ticked off by it. Like it used to be you could get from this part of town to that part of town without paying a toll, and then they put in the Polk Parkway, right? Yeah, so we know, we know what it's like. And, which, is, by the way, is the most expensive um, bit of toll road in all of Florida, um, connecting I-4 to I-4, going around the great metropolitan of Lakeland. Um, side note. <laughs> but that, um, uh, this, this kind of inclusion um, of Levi um, kind of begs, um, begs the question, and it kind of feeds into the next story as well. Levi's already working for the king, that's who the tax collectors work for. I mean, he's, he's probably on Antipas's payroll. When Jesus says, come and follow me, there's this implication now that he's not going to work for that king. He's going to work for this king. This king who's kind of been tapped but not yet enthroned. Maybe, you know, the difference between when a president gets elected in November and gets inaugurated in, in, in uh, January um, or the difference, like in the Old Testament, uh, Saul still king of Israel. David gets tapped by Solomon, excuse me, by Samuel to, to be king. But there was this, this time between him being chosen as king and him becoming the king. There's this time between Jesus announcing the kingdom and the kingdom's consummation, which frankly we're still waiting on. And we get this kind of played out 
played out here. Um, it, leads, it leads to this next uh, question, too, about fasting. So the story about fasting following the story of the calling to Levi, on the one hand, it's best to appreciate that the calling of Levi ends in a feast. Right? He calls Levi. Levi says, yeah, I'll be your disciple. And so what do they do? They eat. Right? They celebrate. And so you know, the scribes of the Pharisees are like, why are you eating with them? Uh, one, one side note, there's some scholars that kind of question why they didn't just um, ask Jesus directly. One of the earliest points of, con- one of the hottest points of contention amongst the early church was the inclusion of the Gentiles and who they were eating with. So if you read on into, say, the book of Acts, that's this kind of really hot topic. And so people kind of question, well, would good Jews uh, who follow in kosher rules eat with such people? And this story, right, is not so much a story of them actually doing it, even though they get questioned by it, but about Jesus doing it. Like, why is he leading them that way? What's interesting historically about it was by the time Mark's actually writing the gospel, those disciples are the ones who are leading the church in this kind of inclusive inclusion at the table. And so that is kind of being played, played throughout there. But that story of feasting gets followed by this story about fasting. Now John's disciples, this is verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guest... He gives us three kind of analogies. The first is the wedding, then it's a piece of cloth, and then there's the wineskin. So the, for the first one, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old cloak, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, and the, and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into uh, fresh wineskins. Let me just read on just a bit more, and we'll finish this bit with the Sabbath, and we'll break up into groups. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees, Pharisees said to him, Look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did uh, when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abathar was the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but for the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of even the Sabbath. This is the second reference to the Son of Man. There is part of me that loves the fact that Jesus said, hey, when I'm here, it's not time to fast, it's time to feast. As somebody who loves to eat, somebody who eats for comfort and who eats to celebrate, I think this is a wonderful thing. Um, Feasting is a religious activity. It's a spiritual activity. We eat together to celebrate. So we, we have our kind of national feast, um, 4th of July, Thanksgiving, even Christmas. 
people get together, religious or not, and kind of celebrate through food. Uh, weddings is a perfect example. No one goes to a wedding reception and everybody standing around just looking at the floor, like nobody touching the food, right? We go there to celebrate, and this is the, this is the image. It's a very popular metaphor in the Old Testament that God is the groom and Israel is the bride. Israel as a bride sometimes doesn't behave very well. That's also a very common theme. But nevertheless, there's this common theme where God is the groom and Israel is the bride. And Jesus is kind of playing that out. Like this is not the time to fast. This is the time to feast. Which is why I think, uh, you know, a lot of times when we celebrate communion, which we do quite a bit around here at Oasis, we want to do it in a celebratory way. I mean, too, too many times I think Christians are kind of down and out. This is good news. Forgiveness is good news. Inclusion in the kingdom is good news. The blessings of God are good news. Uh, love and forgiveness are good news. You just try forgiving somebody and see what it does for you, right? Forgiveness is not just for the perpetrator. Forgiveness is also valuable for the victim, it's, it's like healthy um, for us. It pushes us forward, not backwards. Um, the, in the lectionary, uh, the texts that go along with this passage of, of um, Mark's gospel include this passage from Isaiah 43, um, which is, uh, makes this reference to forgiveness being about God or being God's. It's Isaiah 43, 18 to 25. I won't, I won't read all of that, but he says this, Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches. For I will give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Um, jump down to verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's, that's the passage that the church has historically read in conjunction with Mark chapter 2. It's that passage, and another one that's very interesting as well, and we'll, we'll close here. It's Isaiah 58, uh, beginning with verse um, 3. Isaiah 58, 3. So this is a passage that's read um, at the same time that um, the, the passage about uh, fasting or, or not fasting is, is read. And uh, it's, it's often read, or it's always read actually, during the time of Lent. So Lent is the, the kind of Christian time of fasting. It's the time we kind of set, set things aside. Um, imagine if this is what we thought it meant to fast. Uh, Isaiah 58.3. Why do we fast? Um, but you do not see. Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interests in your, in your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such a fast that I chose a day, of humble, uh, a day to humble oneself? 
Is it not to bow down the head like the bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Especially verses 6 and 7 here. Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall bring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. And how much would that change the Christian practice of Lent if we thought to fast was to give up what we had so that others could be cared for. Um, as you're coming in, I handed out a few uh, cards. If you didn't get one, I have a few more. Kind of following our practice uh, from last week, we're going to break up, but maybe for a shorter period of time. So I'll ask you to kind of move to the back, kind of grab a seat. Um, doesn't matter if it's with or without who you came with. You can mix or you can stay together. No pressure. But if you'd move through those things and kind of, uh, you know, talk through some of those questions, and then we'll do that for about five or ten minutes, and then we'll come back for kind of question and answer and response, okay? I guess somewhere along the line, I, I had heard that Levi was actually Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew. I don't think that's true, but uh, do you know who Levi was? You said he only appears here. Is there any more information about Levi that you might have? Uh, yeah, so the, close, the, the reason that we think that, um, or some think that Levi and Matthew might be one and the same person, is that in the Gospel of Matthew, there's the calling of Matthew that looks just like this calling of Levi. And Matthew was a tax collector, and Levi was a tax collector, and there's no other reference. The, the, and if you're trying to conflate the Gospel stories to kind of make them match, there's no other person who kind of fits the bill. Um, I'm not opposed to kind of trying to conflate the stories, but I, I was trained in a seminary that had a strong bend towards respecting the literary integrity of the text. You let Mark tell you what Mark wants to say. You let Matthew say what Matthew's going to say because they're all inspired. And if, if God wanted to inspire one gospel, God would have. I mean, that was the philosophy of, of textual analysis that they had. And so um, that's, that's why I still have a, a little bit of that in me. You know, this is mentioned once in Mark. That's, that's all we get from it. And that's all Mark has to say about it. But I think if we do try and conflate it, um, our best guess would be Matthew. Which is probably not a bad guess. I'd always looked at Mark 2 as kind of a convergent of the covenants, where you've got with the old covenant, the old covenant train of thought would be that only a priest or a prophet could forgive sins. Mm -hmm. You know, you start off there, and then you've got with the, with the uh, wedding uh, party, so to speak, and under the old covenant, it would only be at a wedding where the bridal party would be able to abstain from fasting. Mm. And then also on the end where you, where you sum it up there, and... Uh, 
had one more point. I can't think of where it is now. Oh, with the un, unshrunken cloth and that with the old covenant, again, picture of the old covenant and a new covenant. Jesus said uh, basically that the, he didn't come to abolish the old covenant, but it would be fulfilled in the new. And so you see that by those illustrations there as well. Yeah, I think Fred uh, raised some great uh, points of observation and questions for us. I mean, on, on the one hand, I think, I think Jesus is definitely redefining a lot of what this looks like. And he's definitely moving us forward or inviting us forward. The kingdom's coming at us and times are changing. Uh, Luke will say it a little differently. He'll say, it happened like this from the prophets to John and now comes the kingdom. So it's moving this way, and all of a sudden, things are now coming at us this way. Um, so on the one hand, um, I think Jesus is really kind of pressing the envelope. On the other hand, I mean, Jesus is a Jew. I mean, we, we, there's no, we don't want to kind of deny that in any way, shape, or form. And when, I, when we talk about Jesus, um, his disciples eating on the Sabbath or working on the Sabbath and they getting criticized for it. He doesn't deny it, and, but he does kind of excuse it. That doesn't mean that somehow Jesus was an unobservant Jew, that he was going out eating bacon double cheeseburgers on the weekend and, and disregarding the, the, you know, the Old Testament law. Uh, I think Jesus was, was definitely an observant Jew, and I think he, 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 um, he did see himself kind of fulfilling this role um, in some ways very much in keeping like the prophets of old, uh, but in other ways utterly knew, you know, that he is the son of man. And so therefore he, he has the authority to kind of make the call, um, which kind of puts him at the top of that whole, of that whole system. As for the analogy of the old and new, which um, I guess that's, there's two different things there, right? There's the, the cloth on being sewn on, and then there's the wineskin. Um, I, I don't want to stretch that analogy too far, uh, no pun intended there, um, because I, I think if we do, we can fall into this um, uh, old is bad New, new is right uh, piece, which I think is inconsistent with, with the evangelists, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, right, so Matthew, yeah, Matthew says it most explicitly. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, we get Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I, I don't think, Mark's not at odds with that, although Mark's not really emphasizing that all, as much as Matthew does. Um, Mark's kind of pressing us, pressing us a little further with Jesus. Just to add to that about the wineskins. Yeah. Because he's not talking to Christians at this point. He's talking to Messianic Hebrews. And, and, and uh, describing what he's talking about is we're not throwing, like you were saying, we're not throwing the old all out and disregarding it all because there are blessings in that part of what he is saying as they continue to fulfill the prophetic word as he's coming on now to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. So he's not saying discard it all, but as a messianic Hebrew, he's saying now the fulfillment is coming by 
encompassing that and adding to what I am saying now but, uh, and what you already have. So now there's more to this than just what we have. And he is really fulfilling that by saying now, here's the new wineskin and here's the new wine that's coming in to fulfill these things. And even if it's the old thing with the patch, it's not going to break if that is encompassing the new. It will restore itself as a complete uh, Messianic Hebrew. Yeah, I think um, you really need to come the next two Sundays. Uh, this, this line of thought that we're on now definitely plays into this Sunday's message and into next Sunday's message. Um, this Sunday is only the Empire Strikes Back. Um, we're in that section. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And next Sunday is about being out of control. Um, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say, don't, don't hate. So the relationship to what has been said and what Jesus says and how that all relates is the next two Sundays um, coming up. Um, while we were discussing the question about how happy or joyful Christians should be, mm -hmm. we kind of had a very strong opinion in our group, and, I, and I'm asking for yours, um, that there's a big difference between happiness and joy. And I just want to know, well, that's what we felt, and mm -hmm. we want to know your thoughts, or I do. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've heard people say, you know, a lot about the difference of it, and I don't disagree with that, though uh, I think they do overlap. I mean, there's a Venn diagram here where someone's not utterly joyful and, and then just um, sad as can be. Um, so sadness and joy uh, don't necessarily, you know, go together. I don't think um, being happy and being joyful is one and the same. Um, but I do think that the kingdom, and maybe I wrote that question for myself as much as anybody else, um, the coming of the kingdom is good news. It's not just good news because you won't be tortured in hell forever. It's good news because the coming of the kingdom provides forgiveness and mercy and love and grace in the here and now. It, it um, Forgiveness is this incredible power um, that overcomes uh, revenge and retribution and violence in, in ways that um, almost nothing else can. Um, so we, we actually spoke in, in our group um, about the power of forgiveness and, and what happens when we don't forgive, you know, how, how that kind of eats at us. Um, and just that, that passage from Isaiah, God's like, look, I'm forgiving your transgressions for me. Like, I'm, I'm going to be in a, in, a, in a nice, healthy relationship with you people. And, I, you know, you've done a lot of horrible things, but I'm going to forgive you so we can, we can move forward. Like, God, God is more committed to our relationship, both with each other and with him, than we are, to, we are ourselves. I mean, he's the, he's the adult in the room, um, so to speak. What, what, I mean, I'm curious now about your group's discussion. Um, well, Give us a little one testimony. of the main things that we talked about um, in regards to this question, it kind of, I mean, it started off, we kind of defined what it was. We thought that, like, joyfulness is kind of the anchor that we get when we do forgive and when we get close to Christ. We feel joy, and it kind of helps combat those other emotions, like, 
sadness and despair, but like happiness is kind of like, I don't know, an out, outward feature and joyfulness is more of like an inward feature is kind of mm. what we talked about. Okay. And that when we accept, you know, all the things that God given us, or had God has given us, um, that we should have a lot of joy and it should be apparent to others. And that's one of the things that draws people in mm-hmm. is the joy that we I like feel. that. Uh, you know, I'd said that I, I might've wrote that question for myself. I mean, generally I'm a pretty happy guy. Uh, I like to tell jokes and I like, you know, I'm more apt to enjoy a comedy than I am a drama. Though, um, I don't know, I can get a little Eeyore-ish, you know, and and I I do have kind of a critical mind, which can lead to skepticism, which is okay, I think, but not if we overfeed it, because I think skepticism can kind of degenerate into cynicism, where I just think everything's wrong, Um, and so I kind of have to guard myself against that, and uh, yeah, I mean, I want... I want people at Oasis to be joyful, happy people. Not to say, now I do hear a lot of this. Uh, this is a caveat. Um, I, kind of growing up in the church, I heard a lot of happy talk as though we only had to speak of things as though they're good. Um, and people would quote that passage from Romans, or they, I would say they would misquote that passage from Romans. <coughs> that God works all things for the good, as if to say everything is good. Well, everything's not good. And uh, those of you who've been around Oasis long enough know that we've been through hell and back uh, as, a, as a church body. And um, we're not that place where you just have to say things are good when they're not. Um, lament, uh, or do you use the old Pentecostal term, praying through, is a Christian practice. Scripture is full of it. We actually have a whole book named after it, Lamentations, you know, not to mention, you know, Job and about a third of the Psalms. So when I talk about being joyful and happy, I'm talking about a genuine joy and a genuine happiness that comes because we're, we've heard the best good news ever. And, and we're experiencing forgiveness and we're becoming forgivers. I think that is good news, and that should affect us. Not to say that we just wink at hardships or struggles, because those are real. And when they happen, we want to, you know, acknowledge them. Robbie, one of the things we, of course, we went through all the questions, but when we're talking about, you know, who would be the group Jesus, yeah. who would make fun of with Jesus eating them. One, we talked about two or three, but one was the homeless. Mm-hmm. And I know... As you know, I can't eat much anymore after since my surgery. So, but I still love to go to Silver Ring. So a lot of times I'll go and get mm. a full Cuban, and I'll take half of it and go over to the park, and I'll find some guy sitting there and offer him the other half and just sit and talk to him and witness and share with him. And a friend of mine one day saw me. goes later, why were you eating with that guy? Well, because he was hungry. Yeah, but he was homeless. I said, mm. so? <laughs> Yeah, What's that I, got to do with it? And I think, you know, with speaking of that, we don't do enough to going out to homeless, out to share with them. We might give money toward helping them, but do we physically go out? Will we physically sit down and share a meal with them? Will we physically uh, be a part of their life, or do we just prefer giving the church money and let them go do it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great point, Dave, and a great testimony. And I'll be happy to share that other half of that Cuban from 
the Silver Ring anytime. <laughs> For those of you who might be new to Lakeland, the Silver Ring's downtown next to Munn Park. It's been around about 60 years, and it's probably the best Cubans in town. So it's on that side. It's on the Tennessee side. Of, yeah, next on the corner store that used to be ice cream. But I, know, I think it's something else. Anyway, Silver Ring, great Cubans. We might want to take that out of the podcast. Um, but, yes, I think, I think you're right. I think um, Jesus, Jesus is so much for us, right? I mean, he is the son of man, and there's all the authority and the power and the transformation that comes with that. But he's also the great example. Like, there's, to, to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian, to be a disciple, is to behave like Jesus. Like, we, we're forgiven, and now that should free us, right, to be forgivers, to be kingdom bearers, right, to be like, like Jesus. And I think, I think you're exactly right. All right. So in reading um, verses 18 through 22, where Jesus is talking about uh, the, fact, the fasting, Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of seems as if he's bringing about, if not like a new form of fasting, but another um, element towards fasting, um, especially with the analogies that he uses, such as like, uh, you know, why would you fast when the, the groom is here? Wouldn't you just do so once he leaves? I um, mean, it kind of brings out what you mentioned, kind of the celebrating, uh, the portion of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with the other analogies, it kind of seems like he's bringing about a new um, perspective on fasting. Um, whereas it would be seen more as a celebration. But then later on in uh, Gospels or even in Acts, you'll see his disciples who still continue to fast, and if not in a mournful way, but more in a, a pleading or in conjunction with prayer. Um, so would you see those two as kind of two different ways we should fast, or would one be used more often than the other? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think uh, I often hear fasting um, kind of stretched, again, excuse the pun, um, beyond, beyond recognition, um, you know, we're fasting television or the internet and we're fasting, you know, by adding things in or by subtracting things. I mean, there is the sense in which fasting had a very simple definition and it meant not to eat. Um, and that was, it does something to us because we like our food, right? Our first meal of the morning is called break fast which is exactly how I pronounced it in third grade, and I'm still wearing the scars from that when all the other kids laughed at me because I was a, I was a bad reader. Um, so, yeah, we call it breakfast, you know. We're, we're breaking the fast. We haven't eaten through the night. Hopefully we haven't eaten through the night because you're getting up and eating in the middle of the night. That's not good for you. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Early onset diabetes, I know. Um, but there's Captain Crunch at midnight. It's so good. Just kind of settles you in for the second sleep. But in any case, um, so part of me wants to kind of uh, be old school on this, right, and say to fast is to not eat. Um, and it is a spiritual discipline, and it does do things to us. I think if we think that uh, we're going to fast and it's going to be a lever to make God do something, uh, I'm not sure who you think you're trying to influence. Um, I don't think God does that. Um, that's, that's like the kid who holds their breath, you know, so their parents, you know. God's not going to respond very well to that, in my opinion. I, I think, though, that the, the fasting, and this is a great example, 
where I think the church historically in the liturgy has been so helpful so that it pairs Mark you know, 2, 18 through 22 with that passage from Isaiah, um, which is a very messianic passage as well, but uh, a passage that says, hey, fast look like this. And it's already been redefined. And it's, uh, it's defined as kind of helping those in need. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting um, for those of you here on Sunday, we had those eight little vignettes about the Beatitudes. Those were all done independently. Like we assigned them out to eight different people, but we didn't, we didn't coach them at all. We just said, hey, try and think of a contemporary equivalent and talk about this. They came up with the pictures. They came up with what they said. I thought it was very interesting how a lot of them bent toward uh, kind of social justice helping the needy, uh, including the marginalized, um, which I think is at the very heart of what Jesus, Jesus is doing, um, both here in Mark 2 and in the Beatitudes.